Good morning. This morning we go back to the book of John as we continue looking at the book of John, looking at finding life in the sun. As I look at the Gospels, um, I think all of us are aware as we read the Gospels that there's repeated material, right? That's not new news to anyone, right? Um, in fact, many of you, I'm sure, have read chronological reading plans that put together the different passages in the Gospels. Sometimes it can be frustrating because you feel like you keep reading the same thing uh, multiple times. But as we look at the Gospels, we find that certain elements get repeated very normally in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in fact, sometimes we run into these elements that are repeated in all four Gospels. By the way, the title for this morning, I, I chose this title, Zealous Cleaning. Actually, I put cleansing because I thought if I said cleaning, it'd be a little bit too much like spring cleaning. And some people, even the name White Glove pops into your head and definitely didn't want to go there. Um, but as we get into the Gospels, um, sometimes we find a story or an event which is re recorded in all four Gospels. There's some 16 of these in the New Testament, events that we find in both Matthew and then again in Mark and then again in Luke, and then again in John. Now, the majority of these events are related to the last week of the life and ministry of Jesus, which makes sense if you're aware of the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke publish their Gospels more or less in the same period, but John publishes Gospel much later than the others. Therefore, we know that John was aware of the material that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in fact, it seems that John actually makes an effort to give us material that's different from the material that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Once again, if we think about it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend a lot more time developing the Galilean ministry, the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry, where John moves very quickly past that part. In fact, he seems to focus on Jesus traveling to Jerusalem and then jumps directly into that last week and gives us almost half of his gospel focusing on the last week and ministry of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it would make sense, right, that of the repeated events in all four gospels, we don't expect to find many in the first part of his ministry. They tend to be more focused on that last part of the ministry. However, you saw on the screen that there was a passage listed in all four gospels but this is not one of the events that is actually repeated in all four Gospels. It seems to be, at first sight, a superficial reading would lead us to think, okay, once again, we have an event that's listed in all four Gospels. However, you'll notice that Matthew records a cleansing of the temple in chapter 21, Mark in chapter 11, Luke in chapter 19, all of them as they come to the close of their Gospel, as they move into that last week, of the life of Christ, and yet John gives us the event of the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. And even though I said John moves very quickly past the first part of the ministry to get into the last week, it's not that quick. He's not in the last week by chapter 2. So, what's going on with the temple cleansing? There are commentaries that immediately say, well, this is the same event that the other gospel writers record, it's just out of order. And in fact, when they do that, they immediately start saying things like, well, John is not concerned with the historical accuracy. He was more concerned with the, the theological perspective. Just 
a little aside here. If your commentary starts taking you in that direction, respectfully close that commentary and perhaps look for a better commentary. Um, it sounds pious to say it, right? Oh, it's concerned with the theological aspect, but you're opening a very dangerous can of worms when you head in that direction because what you're saying is, well, yeah, he messed up the details, but in the end, it sort of all comes out okay, and that is not where inspiration is really taking us. So we actually have two different events in which there's a cleansing of the temple. This is not one event just viewed in different lights. These are actually two separate events. Now, John, what he does in his gospel is, as I said a minute ago, he focuses on the fact that Jesus goes to Jerusalem multiple times. And in fact, John becomes very, very helpful for us in establishing the rough chronology of the ministry of Christ. Because John has four different occasions in which Jesus goes to Jerusalem specifically for the Passover. All right, so you see on the screen, we're missing one. Ah, we're missing one, and it's in gray because actually John doesn't mention what we assume to be the second Passover visit. So the first Passover visit we get in this passage that we'll be looking at today. The third Passover, what I'm assuming is the third Passover visit, we get in chapter 6, very clearly stated. And the last Passover visit, of course, we know the last Passover visit. We assume there's a second Passover visit, however, just because of the rough chronology, and even though John doesn't mention it specifically, we, we assume it's there. Now, there are some people that argue that in chapter 5, verse 1, that is the second Passover visit, and my purpose here is not to enter into arguments and debates and trying to establish that. Um, I'll just leave that, and you can study that on your own. Chapter 5, verse 1 mentions a feast day in Jerusalem, and some people are very fast to say, okay, there it is, that's the Passover, but it's also possible that that could be another feast day in Jerusalem. Uh, there were no shortage of feast days in Jerusalem. So um, some people suggest this is Purim. This is the, the festival in which the story of Esther is remembered, um, other people argue that, no, it is the Passover. In fact, a very interesting passage in Luke 6, verse 1, Luke mentions this very interesting detail. It doesn't exactly come out, for example, in, in the translation we're using, but the idea that Jesus went on the second Sabbath after the first, which is kind of strange because you would automatically assume that there was always a second Sabbath after the first because it's the second Sabbath, therefore there had to be a first one. Um, but it seems possibly that that is a reference to that Passover Sabbath, which didn't always fall on a Sabbath, and therefore there would be a second Sabbath after the first Sabbath, a possibility that could be the second Passover as well. But all that to say, if Jesus did visit Jerusalem for four different Passovers, interesting, on his first and last visit to the Passover Jesus does exactly the same thing. He enters the temple, and he takes a look at what's happening, and then he takes action. And he starts casting out, throwing out all those who are doing business in God's house. Those who are taking advantage of religion to line their own pockets. Those who are in godliness because it's a source of great gain to them. Now, this happens in the first Passover, 
It happens again at the last Passover. Some people say, how unlikely is that? I mean, that the same thing would happen. That's really strange. Actually, it doesn't seem that strange in the biblical context. You see, Passover always began the same exact way. The head of the household would go through the house, and you know what he would do? He would remove leaven from the house. That's the way Passover started. We see this in Exodus. We actually read the passage as this is commanded of the people. They're to go through the house and clean out all the leaven in the house. Isn't it interesting that as Passover comes, as every Jewish head of the household is going through his house and cleaning out the leaven in his house, on two occasions, Jesus goes into his father's house and starts to clean out the leaven in his father's house. You say, yeah, but, but twice the exact same thing? Yeah, because the exact same thing happened. The same thing. You had people using God's house as a source of gain for themselves, and Jesus says, hey, folks, it's Passover time. The leaven has to go. So, I don't think it's a problem for us as we get into this story and as we start looking at this moment of cleansing, the first cleansing, and then understanding that later on, as we move into the Passion Week, we, we see a second cleansing of the temple. So, let's jump into the story and take a look at it. First of all, what I have to understand is there's a basic structure in this cleansing story, which will be repeated in the later cleansing story. Let's take a look at the passage, in, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables." And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I'm sure we've all seen images like this one. Um, a painting of Jesus cleansing the temple. Always interesting to notice, um, normally in these paintings, if you'll look at Christ's face, his face will be completely calm and relaxed, something which is completely contrary to the whole scene in the painting, as you see him holding the whip, as you see him pushing others out of the way. But there's something about these images that I have to admit have always bothered me. Um, if you go back to that first image, and you look at the lady that he's ready to hit with that whip, for as calm as his face may be, there's something inside me that feels like that's not quite the right thing to do, right? That's, there's something very complex about this image, and I don't think the painters have done us any favor in this case. Actually, when we look at the story, I think it's important to notice that he makes the whip, but it never says that he used the whip on old ladies. Maybe even old ladies who were selling pigeons and doing things like that. Um, we jump to conclusions if we assume that Jesus was actually striking people with that whip. In fact, John is the only gospel that mentions the whip, as I'll discuss here in just a minute. And it's interesting, John focuses 
on the fact that Jesus drives the animals out. Now, our translation doesn't exactly give us that idea because it says he drove them all out, and then it adds, as if it were a second thought, sheep and oxen. But it seems like it would be a better reading to say he drove all of the sheep and oxen out. In other words, John is focusing on the animals, and John mentions the whip, and I would think then it would be logical to, to conclude that the whip was never used on people. The whip was used to get those animals running. And you know what the interesting thing? If you get the animals leaving the temple, guess what the owners do? Yeah, because that's their source of income. They're heading out right behind those animals to try to catch. The sheep and the oxen are a little bit easier, I think. The doves, those were the complex ones. But anyway, uh, maybe they come back to roost. I, I don't know a lot about doves. I'll, I'll be honest about that. All right, so we get into this story, and as I said, this story sets up a basic framework that certainly we see repeated as we get into that second temple cleansing. What do we find here? Well, the story starts off as we see activity, business activity happening in the temple. So the story starts off, and we see this activity. People are buying and selling And you say, well, wait a minute, David, isn't that like a necessary part of the temple? I mean, if you're going to offer a sacrifice, don't you have to buy the sacrifice that you're going to offer? And the answer is, yeah, that, that was a logical thing to do. However, what's actually going on here seems to be a little bit more complex. So imagine the situation. Imagine we're from Galilee, And we're going down to Jerusalem for Passover, and we're planning to offer a lamb as part of the Passover feast. Are we going to bring our lamb with us all the way from Galilee? Now, in modern context, it's not that long of a drive, right? We can make that drive pretty quickly, but we're not in our context. We're in their context. If we're going to make a several-day journey down to Jerusalem, do we want to have our lamb on a leash, and lead him the whole way? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm answering that in the negative. All right? I'm not interested in you know, walking a lamb down to Jerusalem. What's the logical thing to do? We sell our lamb in Galilee. We take our money that we've earned from our trade, and now we show up in Jerusalem with money so we can buy a lamb in Jerusalem. Now, here's the ne- next question. Do you think... The price of a lamb in Jerusalem on Passover is the same as the price of a lamb in Galilee. All right, if if you say yes to that question, you have a very beautiful view of life, (laughs) but I'm afraid that it's not a very realistic view of life. All right, so imagine you come into the temple and you find your way to the table where they're selling the lambs. And you say, what are lambs going for this year? And they give you the price, and you say, I know we're in inflation, but that's crazy. Nobody pays that much for a lamb where we live. And the answer comes back, you're no longer where you live. So you end up saying, if we have to buy the lamb, we have to buy the lamb. And so you get your money out for them only to tell you, I'm I'm sorry, you can't use that money here. You see, your money has images on it, and we do not accept images in the temple, but we do offer the convenience service of money changing just over there. 
And so you head over to the other table to change your money only to get there to find out that the exchange rates that are published are nowhere near the actual exchange rate. It's like going to the airport and changing your money at the airport. Travel tip, do not change money at the airport. And you say, that's crazy. My, my money is half as much as what it was when I left my house, and on top of it, the lamb is twice as expensive. And what do we have? We have people who have come to worship God, and they're being taken advantage of so that somebody can get rich. So we have business activity taking over temple worship. We get Jesus casting people and animals out of the temple. We get Jesus overturning tables which seems to be analogous, right? As the animals rush out and the people rush out after the animals to catch them, he turns over the tables and what do the people do? Well, if you had a table with coins on it and somebody turned the table over, what would you do? I would be down on the floor picking up coins as fast as I could. Finally, Jesus turns and explains his actions and then we get the reaction of the religious leaders. So it's true, when we read both the first temple cleansing here in John and the other temple cleansings, we get the same rough pattern. However, there are some important differences as we look at John's gospel compared to the synoptic gospels. The biggest difference is the timing of the events, and we've already mentioned that. John talks about this temple cleansing very clearly happening as Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's just turned the water into wine, his disciples have seen this sign. Nobody else realized that it was a sign, but they saw it, and they believed in him, and now he comes down to Jerusalem, and this is where he cleanses the temple, where in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is clearly the cleansing that happens at the end of his ministry. Number two, there are certain narrative details. I already mentioned the whip and the focus on the animals. This helps us view this, this story in a slightly different light from the other, once again, could Jesus have used a whip several years later as he enters Jerusalem, the temple again? It's possible, but none of the gospel writers mention the whip. Interesting fact. Also, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention very specifically that as he finishes casting people out, Jesus does some very interesting things. Number one, he stops people from coming in. People that are coming carrying loads, he says, no, no. No, that, that's not what this temple is about. You're not here to bring in merchandise. In fact, what he does is he opens up the space for the blind and the lame and the sick to come in, and he heals them and he teaches them, something that we don't see at all in John's account of that day, a slightly different focus of the narrative details. Um, number three, Jesus' description of the temple is different as we look at these two accounts. Here in John, he talks about taking his father's house and turning it into Walmart. Okay, it, it didn't say Walmart, but that's the idea, right? You've made it a place which is designed for one purpose and one purpose only. I mean, if, if, if you, do you... Do you go to Walmart? Maybe I'm showing the fact that I don't live here anymore. Um, I, a few years ago, we were visiting some people down in Alabama, and the man said to me, he said, hey, you want to go with me? I'm going to the Southern Walmart. I was in Alabama. And the Southern Walmart, I said, that's a doubly Southern Walmart. I said, I'm going. It's got to be a cultural experience. And then it turned out it was just the Walmart that was on the south side of town. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't what I was expecting. Anyway, 
Um, you go to Walmart for one purpose, to buy, to do business. Jesus says, you've taken my father's house and you've turned it into a place of doing business. That's a very different thing from what he says in the second temple, temple cleansing. He says, you guys took the place that should have been a house of prayer for the nations and you've turned it into what? You remember the phrase? A den of thieves. You know what a den of thieves is? That's where the thieves go and nobody can touch them. That's their hideout. That's the place where they're safe. They can kick back and relax because no lawman is coming in here. And that's what the temple had become. It had become a place where wrongdoers were actually safe and comfortable. A very different perspective on the temple between these two cleansings. We get the reaction of the religious leaders, which once again is completely different. Here the religious leaders ask Jesus, what sign do you show me for doing this? But when he cleanses the temple the second time, they say, we're going to kill him. A sign? We're not even asking about a sign. We're getting rid of this guy. The sooner the better. But perhaps the most important difference is that John gives us the response of the disciples. It's funny. Have you ever asked yourself where the disciples were in that second temple cleansing? I mean, it's funny. A guy like Peter, I mean, I think Peter would have been somebody that would have totally gotten into over, you know, flipping tables and like, you know, using a whip, you know, to get those animals out of there. I think, now I may be wrong, um, because after all, we are one week away from a little servant girl saying, hey, wait a minute, that, that accent, you're, you're from Galilee too. And Peter's saying, no way. But it's interesting, the disciples are not there. We don't really have an explanation. I mean, I imagine that they were there. I imagine that they weren't just going, oh my goodness, you know, hope nobody sees. I, I imagine they were there, but they completely disappear from the narrative. They're not important in the narrative. This is about Jesus cleansing his father's house. But John focuses on the reaction of the disciples two times in this passage. Take a look at it. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Where... When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, now in verse 22, his disciples remembered. Anytime you see repeated phrases like that, that should stick out in our mind. There's something important that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I want to focus on these two verses. I think that is officially the longest introduction for any sermon I've ever preached. Don't worry. I'm aware of the time. We're going we're gonna to make this work. All right. Two thoughts for us this morning. Number one, the power of godly zeal. And number two, the ultimate victory of Christ. All right, let's jump into that first point, the power of godly zeal. Um, we have two words in English which actually appear in our Bibles. Um, one word is zealous, which we have in this passage the word zeal. And another word is jealous. And if you've read your Bible enough, you know that sometimes we jump back and forth. So we can talk about something, somebody being zealous, and at the same time, we can read about God being a jealous God. And in fact, that may bother us at times to talk about God being a jealous God. Certainly, if our definition for jealous is simply coming out of the American heritage or whichever dictionary you prefer to use, 
that's definitely a problem because jealous in our language normally means a person who is envious, a person who is controlling, a person who is suspicious without any ground necessarily, and those certainly aren't descriptions of our God. However, an interesting fact, both the word zealous and the word jealous come from the same place. This is one of those interesting facts about linguistics, and it's not my turn to talk about linguistics, but they both come from the same word. One goes into French, and from French, we borrow it. That's an easy way of saying we steal it. Into English, the other one, somebody felt like we needed a new word, even though we already had the word, so somebody said, let's go back and do the same word, but this time let's skip and not deal with the French. That seems to be a common thing in our culture anyway. So we skip the French, we go straight in from Latin, and we keep the Z this time, and we have zealous. But then, of course, we have two words that technically came from the same place, so what we do is we give them different definitions. And so for us, zealous, oh, that's somebody who's like, you know, really passionate and active in what they do, and, well, jealous, that's a different story. We have that one already defined for us. But when you come to the Bible, what we find is that this same word actually ends up having both kind of connotations. It does double duty. So yes, we can read that it's something positive because God is this. At the same time, we can see it as something negative because many times man is, and it uses the same word. That makes us a little uncomfortable, but we have to admit we do this all the time in language. I was just trying to think of an example, and I thought of the word unmoving. I don't know, there are lots of synonyms I could have used, like unplacable or I don't know, something like that. Is it good to be unmoving? Your answer? Depends. Depends where you are when you start to be unmovable. For example, if I'm proud, if I'm full of myself, is it good for me to be unmovable? No, that's stubborn. That's something that all of us look at and say, whew, don't spend too much time with that guy. But if I'm doing what's right and I'm facing oppression, is it good for me to be unmovable? Yeah, we say that guy's got integrity. That's a good thing. And that's really what's going on with this concept in the Bible. It's something that actually can go in two different directions depending on the context. Now, we're still kind of struggling with that, perhaps because we're saying, I'm not seeing how you'd have one word be so positive that it's an attribute of God, and at the same time, so negative because it's something that we hate in human beings. Well, I think if we go back to the actual root of the word, where we get to is an understanding that this idea of this jealous, zealous concept that we're trying to define goes back to the idea of being the sole possessor of something the soul possessor, the desire to have a unique soul relationship with something. Now, is that good or bad? It depends. It depends because if somebody has been blessed and has possessions, but I want to be the soul possessor, we call that envy. We say, you know, it's not just that I'm covetous. It's not that, that I want what he has. If you're covetous, you're like, okay, I want what he has, but it doesn't bother me that he has it too. I mean, I just want the same pickup truck that he has. But if you're envious, you don't want him to have that truck. You want to be the only one that has that truck. That way when you drive in, somebody doesn't say to you, oh, I see you've got the same truck that David Blizzard has. 
That, that's not cool, right? You want to be the only one, and that way you stick out in the crowd. And yet, is it bad to be the sole possessor of that which is yours? I tell you what, that's why we lock our cars at night, isn't it? Because we want to be the sole possessor of that vehicle. That's why you guys have been in, in those tours where they have those scooter things, and you get an app on your phone, and you just walk up, and there's a scooter. You jump on the scooter, and you go away. And when you get to where you're going, you park your scooter, and somebody else comes and grabs it and takes it, and it doesn't bother you. Why? Because it's not your scooter. It doesn't matter whose scooter it is. You just use it. But that's not the way we normally treat our possessions. Our possessions are ours, and we are the sole possessor of them. This leads us to another concept, which is actually a very common biblical concept. You see, I don't think I ever would have made this connection, but it makes perfect sense to connect zeal with holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is when something is set aside for a unique use. Holiness is when God says, I want to have a unique relationship with you. My wife came up with the perfect illustration for holiness. A toothbrush. <laughs> That's why they make different colored toothbrushes, right? Um, if you get up in the morning, you go to brush your teeth, and your toothbrush is wet, especially if you live in the dorms, It's going to make you think twice before you brush your teeth. Why? Because there is a unique relationship with your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is for your mouth only, not for anybody else's. You know what? God wants to have a unique relationship with his people. God wants us to be his special people, and he wants to be our God. It's a unique, special relationship. And you know what? That relationship fosters zeal. It fosters this passion. Um, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be here this semester, and I'm so thankful to be involved in the different men's outreaches. Men, those of you who read the book, The Titus 10, I don't know about you, but I thought it was a fantastic book. I was so thankful that I read that book. But there was one chapter that frankly, if I had to only read one chapter, I definitely would have just read that chapter. It was the chapter on zeal. And Smith says the following. He says, zeal is an overwhelming enthusiasm that leads to action. In fact, he said a bunch of other things that were really good. Men, go back and read that chapter. Um, women, borrow your husband's book. It was a great, great chapter. We need that concept. But this idea that, in fact, this zeal... It actually comes out of our knowledge. In fact, there are people who have zeal without knowledge. But a true zeal grows out of knowledge, and that knowledge takes us to this passion, and that passion overflows in action. You don't have to think about it. I mean, we have this with our favorite sports team, don't we? You don't, you don't have to, like, work up the courage to tell somebody that you're a fan of that team. It just sort of, you know, somebody says something, and you just... You find yourself just spouting out facts about your favorite team. You know, somebody insults your team, and you find yourself coming to the defense of your team. I mean, it just, it's there because there's this passion about it. And the question is, does that relationship with God produce that same passion 
in us that drives us to action. That's what this story is about. You see, Jesus walks into the temple and he sees his father's house being turned into a business place. And that idea of this place was built for one purpose. It was built for God, for a unique relationship with God. And people have taken that and they've turned it into something it was never designed to do. And that boils over, that passion boils over into action and Jesus definitely goes into action. Now, as we read this passage, we immediately are connecting up Jesus with King David, right? The disciples remember this passage. It's written, and they go back to the Psalms. It's, it's Psalm 69, and we have this connection between David and his zeal for God's house and Jesus and his zeal for God's house. So we read this passage in Psalm 69, 9, for the zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This idea that says, I am so passionate about the things of God that the people who hate God automatically hate me. Does that happen to us? Because I think sometimes we're scared to let it happen. We kind of want people to like us. Okay, not kind of. We really want people to like us. And we kind of feel that, that need sometimes to fly under the radar so that people don't hate us for who we're passionate about. And yet here's David saying, you know what, that doesn't even really bother me. It's just par for the course. It goes with the terrain. You know, people look at me and they despise me. Why? Because I actually have this passion for God. We don't know exactly the situation that is behind David's writing, but I sort of have that connection in my mind with that moment when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. Remember, they had left the ark halfway because Uzzah had reached his hand out to try to steady the ark. Definitely a well-intentioned gesture, but the whole story was wrong from the beginning. That ark should have never been on that cart, and Uzzah should have never been trying to steady God's presence on the earth. And yet, when they brought it the second time, do you remember David singing and dancing before the Lord? Now, we can discuss whether or not that was the best way for him to act. But do you remember the reaction of his wife? His wife looks out and sees him, and she despises him. She despises him, saying, you, you did not act in a way that a king should act. You looked foolish out there. And I'm not trying to suggest that we do foolish things or try to look foolish, but you know what? If we truly have a passion for God, there will be times I can guarantee it that unbelievers, for sure, but even sometimes believers will look at us and just shake their heads and say, that is foolish. Does that bother us? You know what? If it bothers us, it's a sign that our zeal is less than what it should be. We should have a desire for God, that passion for that relationship with God that's so strong that even if people despise us, it doesn't throw water on our party. So we get David with his zeal for God's house, 
And that takes us directly to this image of Jesus and his zeal for God's house. You know, as we look at this story, it shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus is the one that said, you can't serve two masters. It doesn't work out. Now, we're not talking about people that have two jobs, you know, work a part-time job here, and then on the weekends you have another job. What we're talking about is literally slaves. How would that work out for you to, you know, be a slave with two masters? The way slavery works is your master has you 100%. You don't say, well, I'm part-timing it. You know, I'm, I'm an adjunct slave, you know, so I, I just do this, you know, in my free time, and then I have another slavery issue that I've got going on over here. It just doesn't work that way. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. So when you walk into the temple and you see that these people supposedly are serving God, but what they're really serving is money, you say, it doesn't work that way. And Jesus enters into action, and he says, something's got to go here. You know what it is? It's going to be that which is detracting from worship. And he casts them out. Now, this is not surprising. We should have known this was going to happen. Why? As we go back to the Old Testament, we have these messianic figures, these anointed ones in the Old Testament. And they help us understand different aspects of the true Messiah who's coming. So we've, we've seen this before, right? We have prophets, we have priests, and then we have kings. And so when we look at the Old Testament, what do we see these kings doing? We go to figures like Joash, Josiah. Okay, I put those two because we always get them, okay, I always get them confused. All right, so the good thing is they both go together here. So Even if we get them confused, nobody will notice. We'll just put them together. And Hezekiah, what did these guys do? They went into the temple, and they cleaned out the leaven. I mean, we're talking about idols in the temple. And they said, get these things out of here. Interesting, isn't it? This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling the messianic, prophetic images of the Old Testament as he walks into the temple and cleanses the temple, the power of godly zeal. Now, before we move on, I simply want to make a few comments. The fact that God is zealous, he desires a unique relationship with us, and he desires it so much that he's put it into action. This is an amazing, amazing thought that the gospel brings us. We know these verses, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know what that is? That is zeal. That is God saying, I want a relationship with my people, and I want it so much, I'm going to send my son. We even see it in Jesus Christ. As Hebrews tells us, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. What did he do? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The passion of Jesus Christ in which he was willing to give himself up for us. I want to start with this point because what if you're listening to this message today and you've never actually received, been on the receiving end of God's zealous desire to have a relationship with you? Maybe you've come to church because, I mean, it's, not a bad place to be, right? 
I mean, this is a pretty group, good group of people. I mean, I have to admit, if I were in Greenville and I wanted to have a connection with some pretty decent people, this would be a pretty good place to go to meet some pretty decent people. That, at least, is my experience. If that's not true, don't tell me about it. I'm, I'm enjoying my experience. <laughs> but that's not what church is about. Church is about a zealous God who wants to have a relationship with his people, a unique relationship unlike any other, and he wants to reveal that, the beauty of that relationship to his people. And so I want to simply start, before we go any further, start by saying, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you've never received the beauty of that zealous desire of God to have a relationship with you, do not let this day pass before you place your faith in Jesus Christ. But I do want to take a little bit further step on and look at that second thing the disciples remembered. Not only did they look at the power of godly zeal, but they also looked at the ultimate triumph of Christ. If we keep reading our passage, we see here in verse 18, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is asked for a further explanation. It's surprising because his first explanation was pretty good. You took my father's house and you turned it into a business place. That should have been sufficient. But they said, give us a sign. Now, this idea of the sign, this is something that we keep seeing again and again in the Gospels, a request for a sign. Sometimes it really bothers us, right? Because he feeds 5,000 people, and the Pharisees say, give us a sign. Uh, another sign. I mean, there are times where you just say, what kind of sign could Jesus have done that would have closed the book for these people? I mean, it, definitely there's nothing. Now, they ask for a sign, and certainly in their mind, they're thinking, we want a present sign. We want something that you can show us right now that's going to give us the answer for your authority to do this. And what's interesting is there seems to be present signs in the context, because the, the verses immediately following this one, verse 23, tells us that the people believed on him, noticing the all right, your, your translation might say miracles that he had done, but that's the same word for sign. Um, obviously, Jesus must have done some miracles. And then in the, in the very next passage, and, and here's where I start to tread on dangerous ground because this is not my passage, but I won't, I won't go into this passage. But what does Nicodemus say to Jesus? He says, nobody can do what you've done, the signs that you've done, unless God were with him. What did Nicodemus see? Interesting, he saw signs. Now, it may be that partially, at least, those signs could have been the very cleansing of the temple. I mean, to me, that would be a very interesting sign of the authority, right? That you could walk in and cleanse the temple and then walk out. That would be a sign of authority that you were able to do something like that. But it seems that they're asking for some sort of miraculous sign. But what does Jesus say to them? He says, well, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. But it's not a present sign. It's a future sign. What's his sign? 
He says, destroy this temple. Interesting. Did Jesus say, I'm going to destroy this temple? Is that what he said? When he says destroy, what, what, what is that? Grammarians? English majors? Oh my, I'd better answer that myself. <laughs> it's an imperative. It's a command. If you destroy this temple, when they, when they come down to Jesus' trial, what do they say? Ah, he said he was going to destroy the temple. No, he didn't. He never said, I'm going to destroy the temple. They got it completely wrong. He said, even if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Now, this is a very interesting statement because obviously the Pharisees understood he was talking about Herod's temple. They understood him to be talking about bricks and buildings. And they answered. They said, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? That's ludicrous. Without even thinking about how ludicrous it was to say, destroy this temple. Like, like they couldn't imagine that they were destroying the temple. But think about it for a minute. Were they destroying the temple? Completely. By allowing people to come and do business in God's house, they were destroying God's temple. It was no longer serving the purpose that God had set it up to serve. And so it's interesting. There's a sense in which I look at this passage and I say, yeah, Jesus is saying, you guys are destroying this temple, but, hold on, I'm not really talking about this temple. You guys are going to try to reach out and destroy this temple. In fact, if we look at what Luke 19 says, it says the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. I don't think that's an accident that Luke includes that word, destroy him. I think that fits into the whole prophetic idea of destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. This idea that they're going to try to destroy Jesus. And in fact, it's actually going to look like they're successful. It's going to really seem like they just thwarted God's plans. One of my favorite verses from the book of Job is in, verse, in chapter 42, as we come to the end of the book, and Job makes this statement to God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What a gem. That is a treasure. God cannot be thwarted. All attempts to destroy God's plan will ultimately fail. Although it may sometimes appear that God's, plans has been, God's plan has been initially thwarted, the ultimate victory always belongs to God. Jesus says, even if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. That's my authority to cleanse this house. Now, as we close, I want to go to 1 Corinthians, where Paul makes this statement. If anyone destroys God's temple, Paul makes this statement on this side of the destruction of Jerusalem, which makes it even more powerful. Um, as you think of this being in Scripture as the Roman armies come in and surround Jerusalem and burn the temple to the ground. But Paul makes this statement, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. Remember, holiness is connected with zeal, and you are that temple. 
So as I conclude this message, I have a couple really basic questions for us. My first question is, are we destroying God's temple? Okay, that sounds a little over the top. It sounds a little too much for us, but I mean, think about it. Setting up tables to buy and sell, make a profit, a good profit. I'm sure the Pharisees were getting their cut on that one. Setting that up, I'm sure, was something that was easy to justify in the minds of many people. But what were they doing? They were destroying God's temple. And I think about so many things that we can do in our lives where we start to pursue our own will, our own desires. We start to make God sit in the back seat as we take the reins ourselves and make decisions. And what we are actually doing is destroying the purposes that God has for our life. And you know what? That puts us in a very dangerous position because our God is a zealous God. Our God says, no, no, this doesn't work like I get you half time. I'm not in this for the weekends. I want to reign on the throne of your life. And we can put ourselves in such a dangerous position when we actually start destroying God's temple, doing things that we have no business doing in God's temple. And this passage brings me back to that idea of saying, wow, the best thing that I could ever experience in life would be for the zeal of Christ to overtake him where he comes into my life and he turns over the tables, he opens the cages, he whips out those animals so those animals run out of my life so that my life can actually be what God wants it to be. But not just that thought. The idea that Jesus wants to produce that same zeal in us where we live for, with passion doing God's will for our lives. I'm going to end simply with this verse, once again, from 1 Corinthians. As Paul tells us, cleanse out the old leaven. This is a Passover verse. Get rid of that leaven. Let Jesus cleanse your temple so that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You know, the lamb always got the short end of the stick at Passover. The lamb got crucified. Is it too much to ask for the lamb to be able to cleanse our lives, prune our lives, so that we will bear more fruit? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask, please, that you would be glorified in our lives that you would cleanse out the old leaven. Father, things sneak into our lives and they take up residence and they hinder us from running the race as we ought to run. Father, give us eyes to see that we might be pure for you and may we live with this zeal, with this passion so that Christ may be glorified in us. I pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.